Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah wa kafa wa salamun ala ibadihi alladhina asfafa amma ba'd. Faqad qala Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala fi muhkam tanzilih ba'dan a'udhu billahi minash shaitanir rajim. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Wa qul lil mu'minina yaghuddu min absarihim wa yahfudhu furujahum. Wa qala ta'ala wa qul lil mu'minati yaghudduna min absarihinna wa yahfudhna furujahum. Wa qala ta'ala يا ايها النبي قل لازواجك وبناتك ونساء المؤمنين يدنين عليهن من جلابيبهن وقال تعالى واذا سالتموهن متاعا فاسالوهن من وراء حجاب وقال تعالى ولا تخضعن بالقول فيطمع الذي في قلبه مرض وقلنا قولا معروفا صدق الله العظيم my dear respected brothers and sisters in islam respected ulama mashayikh elders and students assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh Today, we have an opportunity to, in this session, insha'Allah, to cover one of the commandments of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the commandment of hijab. And how is this? It says, embracing the hijab as a symbol of faith and identity. Is it a symbol of faith and a symbol of our identity, of our sisters as slaves of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? And the crux of the matter is that what is our purpose in this life? Why we have been created? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes it very clear. I have not created the jinn and the ins but for my ibadah. We are all slaves of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The more we lead our lives according to the Ubudiyah model, the way of Rasulullah sallallahu as slaves of Allah that our beloved Prophet sallallahu reached was because he was the most humble slave of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala conferred upon him that unique maqam, that position of taking him through the skies and the heavens, the seven heavens, all the way to Sidratul Muntaha, and granted him the opportunity to uh, privately speak with him. He brought him very close and he had a special kalam with him at the Sidratul Muntaha, where Sayyidul Malaika Jibreel السلام, could also not go forward in the well-known incident of Isra in Mi'raj, in the Mi'raj portion, when he climbed up, ascended the heavens, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Subhanallah asra bi abdihi, that Allah is the glorified being who took his slave, abdihi. Instead of saying, Subhanallah asra bi nabihi or bi rasulihi, or in many of the other attributes, our beloved Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Subhanallah asra bi abdihi. Showing on both ends. One end is that the reason he was granted such a high lofty status is because he was a great servant of Allah, the greatest servant of Allah. And the other way of looking at it is that it is through servitude that we can become closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So when it comes to hijab, the actual reason why we are obligated, our women are obligated to adorn themselves with the hijab, and the men that we are also obligated to lower our gazes, it is not because he said or she said or some misogynistic uh, anti-woman, woman-hating fuqaha scholars came up with this. Rather, this is an obligation from Allah. And a woman, when she wears her hijab, she is demonstrating that she is a servant of Allah. She is an amatullah. She is a slave of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The actual illa, the reason why this is an obligation is because of the order of Allah and nothing else. In fact, the scholars, they go in detail of some of the ayats 
wherein Allah Ta'ala said, Ya ayuhan Nabiya, O my Nabi, Qulli azwajik, command your wives, وبناتك, your daughters, وَنِسَاءِ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ And all the believing women, يُذْنِينَ عَلِيهِنَّ مِنْ جَلَابِيبِهِنَّ That they should cover themselves with a jilbab from the head that will cover down over their bodies. This part of the ayah, so that they are recognized, and they should not be harassed, and they should be recognized as free women versus the slave women. In case anyone would reach the wrong conclusion, the scholars of tafsir have very explicitly pointed out that this is not the illah, this is not the causative factor of the ruling. This is one of the many hikmah and the wisdoms behind the ruling. There, one is the illah, and one is the hikmah. One is the actual causative factor, which is the reason behind where, why we have to fulfill the obligation. And what are other, and, and one is the hikmah. The hikmah is potential benefits that we can derive. Sometimes we derive the hikmah. In this case, some of the times the hikmah is given by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But the, the ruling is not contingent upon the hikmah. The ruling is contingent upon the illah. If the illah is not found, the hukum will not be applicable, will not remain. But as long as the illah is there, the hukum remains. An example would be uh, like idda. Now Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes it very clear that there is a particular idda, waiting period for the mutallaqa, for the divorced woman. Three menstrual cycles. And for the widow, Four months and ten days. Now, the illah, when does the talaq, of, uh, when does the idda for a divorced woman come into existence? Is when the talaq occurs. So if the talaq occurs, the idda must be fulfilled. And there are different ahkam of the idda. Wujuba nafaqa, meaning the husband has to continue to provide for her, sukna, her residence and her expenses. And... Uh, what actually is very important, of course, is it is haram for her to get married in her idda. So this is the ruling. And this is the illa behind it. But there is a hikmah. The hikmah is that we would learn that the wife or the ex-wife is not pregnant with the first husband, nutfa, uh, such that if she gets married the next day and she ends up having a child, delivering a baby nine months later, uh, the second man, he would think it is his child, where it may be the child of the first husband. So this is a hikmah. Now, sometimes people say, if the husband and wife were separated, it was a um, long-distance marriage. And perhaps that is the reason why eventually they agreed upon divorce, because uh, they're having immigration issues, and maybe she got blacklisted. She'll never be able to join her husband. The only way to continue the marriage is the husband has to leave the country of his birth, where he lives and works, and move to the, migrate to the country of his wife. And he's not ready to do that. So, but they have consummated the marriage once, and now they have been away for six months, one year, two years. So will you have to go ahead with the idda or not? You still will have the idda. Because when there is the talaq, the idda will happen, will be in effect, will be an obligation. She says, well, the purpose of that was, the purpose of that was so that... Um, to ensure that I'm not pregnant and how can I be pregnant when I have been away for six months, one year. That's a hikmah. This is one of the objections, those who are trying to dismantle the obligation of hijab. They say, oh, this particular reason doesn't apply anymore. There's no slave woman and free woman and this distinction between the two, etc. They come up with different various ways of misinterpreting this ayah. But 
I wasn't necessarily going to go into that long discussion, but it came about. The main purpose I wanted to mention from the get-go is that the reason the woman wears hijab or should wear hijab or must wear hijab or the reason we also follow any commandment of Allah Ta'ala, any obligation is because at the end of the day, we are his slave and he is our master. Simple as that. We are the abd of Allah and Allah is our malik, our master. And we have to declare our servitude to him. This is the actual meaning of Islam. What does Islam mean? Islam means to submit. To submit to the will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Irrespective of what our mind may wish or dictate, what our desires want, what the culture says, where the people are uh, heading, whether, whatever direction they may be heading, whether it's fashionable or not fashionable, whether they are celebrating it or attacking it, whether they think it is subjugation, oppression, or they think it is liberation. All of those factors are inconsequential. We do investigate, we do try to determine up to what level to determine is this truly the will of Allah? Is this truly the command of Allah? Is this truly the sunnah of Rasulullah? We do the due diligence. And after we determine, subhanAllah, this is what Allah wants, then we, we do not look right or left in any other direction. We move forward and we submit to the will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's the essence of Rabudiyah, submission with love. If a person says, I love Allah, but he does not submit to his command, that will, that will not take him towards salvation. And a person is submitting with hatred, uh, with anger. I gotta wear this thing, I gotta do this, I gotta do that, or that's haram. That is also not true ubudiyah. Ubudiyah is a person loves Allah, and with love he fulfills the order of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's the essence of ubudiyah. Fear, fear of what? Fear of not of injustice from Allah, fear of disappointing Allah, fear of not coming up to the level that Allah wants us to be at. Fear of incurring the wrath of Allah is there. Love of Allah is there. Hope in His reward is there. And these are the motivating factors, raghaban wa rahaban, that a person has fear of rejection and hope in acceptance and complies with the order of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So typically, when we discuss uh, hijab, we go over all the ayat and all the different ahadith. And then you have what is qala Allah and then qala Rasulullah. And then you have the aqwal of fuqaha. My respected colleague, one of who just happened to be the one introducing, he was telling me yesterday we were talking, he said that subhanAllah, that those ayats are there, those ahadiths are there, and the fiqhi discussions are there. But the situation of the ummah is such that perhaps we have to approach it in a different manner. Imagine uh, there is a child that um, is playing with marbles, and somehow he was given a diamond, priceless jewel, gem, and he doesn't realize what he has. One of the different ways of uh, making this child wake up and realize what you have is if you make that child aware that do you know all these people around you, they're trying to swindle you, they're trying to trick you. They're saying that if you just give us this one marble, we'll give you, you know, 50 pounds of candies, whole bag of candies, whole bag of chocolates for one marble. It's not a marble, it's a diamond. They're trying to take this away from you. So one way to approach this and to realize how important this blessing is and how important this gift from Allah Ta'ala is is if you look at all of the efforts that are taking place to snatch this from us because hijab is not only a command of Allah it is also it says identity right it's an identity it's min min islam an identity of a Muslim woman 
So we have different commandments, right? Like the salah is farad. And, but before the farad salah, we had the adhan. The adhan is technically a sunnah amal. Yani it is not min shara'it salah, it is not one of the necessary conditions for the validity of the prayer. Shartu shay, the shart and the condition for something is lazimu shay kharijahu, that which is mandatory and precedes it before it. And the rukun shay is the lazimu shay dakhiluhu, the rukun, the integral is necessary and part of it. So the salah has necessary actions. Those that precede it are the shara'it, those that are part of it are the arkan, the conditions and the integrals. So, your clothes must be pure. Face the qibla. You must have the niya. You must be in a state of wudu. You have to make wudu, etc. These are the conditions. And then within the salah, you have qumu lillahi qanitin qiyam. فَقَرَأُوا مَا تَيَسَرَ مِنَ الْقُرْآنِ You have to recite the Qur'an in وَرْكَعُوا وَسْجُدُوا رُكُورُ سُجُدُ These are the arkan. Where is the adhan? Is it necessary prior to salah or is it part of the salah? It's neither part of the salah for sure because the salah تَحْرِيمُهَا التَّكْبِيرُ تَحْلِيلُهَا التَّسْلِيمُ Salam begins, salah begins from the Allahu Akbar takbir tahrima and it ends with the salam. So it's not part of the salah, it precedes the salah. But is it a shart? Is it necessary? No, it's not. What is it? It's sunnah. Does that mean we abandon it? No, we don't abandon it, but it, it, it is a sunnah. So, for, for, for example, a person ended up performing salah without wudu, he must repeat it. If he knows for a fact he did not have wudu, he must repeat it. If he was an imam and he performed the salah without wudu, he must inform all of the muqtadis, everyone in the courtyard, everyone everywhere, men and women have to repeat the salah, right? But if the salah is performed without adhan, you don't have to repeat it, right? Because it's not a shart. Now, so this is the fact is sunnah. But there is another perspective to adhan. And what is that perspective of adhan? It is min sha'airillah. It is one of the symbols of our deen. It is a symbol of our deen. It is a unique hallmark, a unique attribute, unique characteristic of our deen. It is a sign that these are the people of Islam. These are the reciters of the kalima la ilaha illallah. Such that when they would be having the attacks, in the time of war and in the past, this would be the sign. They would wait for the break of dawn. If they would hear the adhan, they would know that, oh, these are, this is the dwellings, uh, this is the village uh, of the believers. And the absence of adhan means these people are disbelievers. So if there was an, some active campaign taking place in a restricted area because a violation of a peace treaty or whatever the case may be, there was some war going on. Not in a normal scenario. The absence of adhan is indication, sufficient indication that they can go ahead with the attack. Wow. And that is why if somebody, the muadhan says, Ashadu wa la ilaha illallah, wa ashadu anna Muhammad, Muhammad Rasulullah, if somebody says, Kadabta, you're a liar, in the books of fiqh, this has been kalimatul kufr, will expel a person from the fold of Islam. And Allah Ta'ala says, Wa man yu'adhim sha'ail Allahi fa innaha min taqwa al-quloob, that whosoever has respect for the shayr and symbols of Islam, this is a sign of the taqwa of the hearts. And it is a very sad day that we have come so far that we are having to approach this concept of our budiyah, slavehood to Allah, 
of the commandment of hijab from the perspective of looking at those who are attacking it and appreciating the value from that perspective. Just like Shaykh al-Hadith, Mufti Sayyid Palampuri, when he was visiting here, we were making mashwara. It just comes to mind since we are sitting in the main prayer hall. Oh, should we just take out the minarets from the construction? It was in construction phase. You're not going to blow up an existing minaret. <laughs> it was still in the design phase. So we should, uh, should we just not build a minaret? Because, mashallah, we have so many masajid in Chicagoland. Purpose-built masajid. They don't have minarets. So he said, the dome was already up. We were talking about the minarets. So he said, if you wanted to cancel something, you could have canceled the dome. Because that's not min al Islam. It's not a symbol of Islam. Because the U.S. capital has what? Dome. So many capitals have dome. St. Peter's, ca ca capital of the, not the United States Congress, but capital of the Catholic Church has what? Dome. So this is not something unique to Islam. But the minara is what? Min al-Islam. One of the identification, I, uh, identifying markers of our deen. No other structure has a minaret besides the house of Allah. And the house of Allah, Allah Ta'ala says that lillah, these houses are erected to remember Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. Fi buyutin anturfa, to erect them high. So there are so many churches, like Eastern Orthodox churches, they look very similar to what? Masajid, beautiful domes, very similar. But they do not, obviously they will never have what? A minara. They will have a cross. Do we understand what Sha'ir Illah is? Look at the Sha'ir of the Christians. What's a cross indicate? Indicates Christianity, right? Very simple. Just like the cross indicates Christianity, and the minara indicates a masjid, the hijab indicates that she's a Muslimah. It is a symbol of our deen. And that is why in Switzerland and different countries, there's laws in the books and the laws that are being discussed. To ban domes? No. To ban minarets. There's a grandfather clause, okay, if it's already there from the Ottoman time, we'll let it, we'll not break it down. But you, there is a military and there's a ban. You cannot build minarets. Because minaret is a sign of Islam, subhanAllah. This was the faqahat of Muthi Sayyid Sahib, rahmatullahi. So likewise, if you want to see, you know, wow, what's the big deal? Right, this is a typical question. From the men maybe, and all, more so from the women. As this is an obligation for the women, from Allah. This obligation of Allah, it's not the obligation of the husband. Right? There, the husband has rights. The husband does have rights. We're not saying the husband has no rights. Husband has rights, wife has rights. But is the hijab the right of the husband or the right of Allah? So, Mona Usman Sahib himself and Mona Hamza Imtiaz. We can go back and hear the recording if you missed it. They talked about marriage today. They talked about the husband's rights. They talked about the husband's right of intimacy. Right? They talked about the wife's right towards intimacy, towards nafaqa sukna. So when the sharia mentions the rights of the husband, this is the right of the husband that the wife must fulfill. Does it mention in there that the right of the husband is that she wears hijab? No, nowhere in any mazhab. Because again, what am I targeting? I'm targeting the haters of hijab, the enemies of Islam from outside and the feminists of, who claim to be Muslims from inside who say that the male, you think you are owning and possessing the body of the female and you are fulfilling your uh, ego by dictating, dominating our body, subjugating them. 
I mean, this concept has so many different ways it goes to, all the way to the point of, you know, my body, my choice, I can kill the baby, right? People already were thinking about that. The unborn baby, I can kill the, the baby, the fetus that is developing into, inshallah, if you let it go, it would become a human being, would have a beautiful life perhaps. But you are killing it, why? Because it's my body, my choice. So my body, my choice is a mantra, is the, is the, call, is the call of the time from the liberals, from the left, and the Muslims who have joined forces with the Democrats, right? So they are saying, my body, my choice. So when it goes so far, my body, my choice, that you can kill a baby, then what about, you know, wearing hijab? That's like, forget about that. That's obviously my choice. So we are not saying that hijab is the husband's right, that he can, you know, you are violating his right by uncovering. No, it's the right of Allah. The husband does not own you. You belong to Allah. You're not Ammatu Zawj, you're Ammatullah. And he's definitely not Abdu Zawjah, hopefully. Right? He's supposed to be what? Abdullah. Not the slave of his wife, nor she. They are, both of them are slaves of Allah. They support one another to become true slaves of Allah. Invite one another towards good and invite one another towards good and forbid each other from wrong. The wife reminds the husband, guard your gaze in the mall. Where are you looking? She grabs his. And the, and the husband will remind his wife that, look, your hair is getting exposed. Your hijab is becoming a hijab. Huh? <laughs> so, so this is how they will. This is what the Quran says. Wow, they're supporting one another. Supporting one another. So this is not a subjugation to the husband. This is subjugation to Allah. Subhanahu wa ta'ala. So now the enemies, they understand that better than us. So this is the objection that comes. Why are you mullahs? Mawlanas. Mawlanas is a good word. Maybe mullahs sounds worse. right? So why are you mullahs so obsessed? with the one meter piece of cloth. You have nothing in the world to talk about besides my hair. Right? So why are you so obsessed? So my question is, the parliaments in France, Belgium, Netherlands, may Allah protect us here, freedom of religion is enshrined in the Bill of Rights, let's see how long that lasts, right? But, uh, uh, um, don't you, you're saying, you have nothing to talk about, I ask you the same question. Don't you think they have nothing to talk about? They have to balance the national budget. They have to worry about the healthcare, defense spending, education, infrastructure, building the roads, highways, social security. All of these agenda items are there, but they are voting on and passing laws to ban the hijab. Other parties in different countries are running campaigns, campaign posters that you vote us in, and what will we do? Will we solve the healthcare crisis? Will we do, um, subhanAllah, increase, you know, retirement packages for pensions for the population, aging population? Or, you know, provide free childcare for working parents? Or something of that nature? No. The biggest draw is we will ban the hijab. So maybe they are understanding something we aren't. They understand that this is what? Symbol of Islam. This is the identity. Wow, this woman who is wearing hijab, despite all of Hollywood and Bollywood, despite all of the uh, culture that we are pushing down their throats, 
She is not sub, uh, falling into that trap. Subhanallah. She is a woman of Iman. She is a Ammatullah, slave girl of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is a woman who will raise such children, which will not be falling into our trap that we cannot misguide, but rather they will be submitting to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That is why it is so scary. And this is something that there is an entire history from of it. We have, mashallah, Brother Khalid Beg, may Allah hafizahullah, and his son Mufti Muni Beg visiting us from California. They'll be doing, they have done some sessions, they'll be doing further sessions tomorrow. And when I was meeting him, I was, um, it reminded me of, of the articles that I used to read that he had written, mashallah, many years ago from the 90s and 80s in the first things, first column of the Impact magazine. And when I saw him, it jogged my memory. He may be sitting here with us. Anyway, so I'm giving the reference. So when I saw him, it reminded me of those articles I used to read. And how many different khutbahs in the bygone days I prepared from his, from his columns and from his papers. And this is something that we should always attribute back. Whoever we benefit from, man allamani harfan, whoever taught us one harf, fa'ana abdu, I'm his slave. If he wishes, he may set me free. If he wishes, he may sell me. So he did his research. Yeah, I want to quote a few things. This is the research that he did, and he wrote in different articles about the history of the animosity of the Western imperialists from the colonial era when they entered into the Muslim lands, the hatred they had for the hijab. So he says, in the early 20th century, the Rockefeller Foundation sent Ruth Francis Woodsmall. This Mrs. Ruth Francis Woodsmall, she went on an 18-month trip to the Muslim world. 18 months, you know, it's hard to go for 40 days. <laughs> 18 months, what type of tashkil is that? So she went um, to the Muslim world to study the changing state of Muslim women under the influence of colonial rule. Like we've been doing this effort of stripping the women of their haya, taking this blessing away from them. Let's do a Karguzari analysis how far we have progressed. Her voluminous report was published by the American University of Beirut in 1936. She traveled to Turkey, Syria, Egypt, Palestine, Transjordan, Iraq, Iran, and in, in, in India. All of these places, you know, she was alami tashkil, all over these countries she went to. Each place she put the subjects of her study under the microscope, looking at all signs of westernization, which she called as what? Advancement and progress. Now the key thing is, quote, this is quoting her, Undoubtedly, the barometer, the barometer of social change in the Muslim world is the hijab. If you want to see how successful we are, the litmus test, the barometer which will indicate you know, where we are at, how much progress we made and how much is left to do is the hijab. She wrote, um, so she studied it in great detail because her whole journey was not just about hijab, it was about westernization of Muslim subjects. But she focused specifically on the hijab because she identified that as a barometer. And therefore she studied in great detail, noting the, all the designs, materials, sizes, the practices regarding it, cheering on those who are fighting to eradicate the evil of the veil. Right? Now, from, even from a liberal perspective, some of the things that happened, I mean, 
from pure liberalism perspective, it, it is not acceptable. But that is something which is very subject, uh, subjective and what should be and should not be accepted under liberalism keeps on fluctuating. We see here Mustafa Kemal Pasha, the autocratic and apostate ruler of Turkey, the Murtad, had banished the hijab along with all other Islamic obligations that were lahir. Right? He, 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 uh, he banished it, he made it illegal. Therefore, he was a hero. He received glowing tributes from her. Anything he did in this regard was considered logical, was considered just. For example, when Turkish women were granted the right to vote, they can vote now, women wearing hijab. If you're wearing hijab, you're debarred from voting. You can't vote, you're wearing hijab, get lost. Regulation which was accepted as entirely logical. Right? Uh, in Iran, Shah Reza Halvi, the majesty, he declared 8th January 1936. This is the day of emancipation, which was forcing upon the women so-called advance. Um, compulsory unveiling in schools. There was also oppressive measures. Look at this. No veiled woman can receive treatment in a public clinic in Iran, 1936. Or ride in a public conveyance. You want to get treated like you can't. If you go to the ER, they say we can't treat you because you're wearing a hijab. What did Wuzmal think about this denial of basic human rights on the basis of religious observance? She said, this is her remarks, like, maybe it happened and she wasn't aware of it. Like, unintended consequence of westernization, oh, that's pretty sad. Oh, really? You guys took it that far? Oh, that wasn't our intention. She didn't say that. In fact, her remark is, these two regulations, meaning you can't get treated and you can't have public conveyance, will doubtless for a time work genuine hardship on conservative Muslim women, but eventually their conservative behavior will doubtless be overcome. For the greater good of freeing them from the subjugation of the hijab, temporary pain, it can be tolerated. Um, Subhanallah. So, the colonial powers, I mean there's many different references, but you get the basic point. They use all of their powers in this crusade against the hijab, from ridicule to fierce propaganda to coercion. Hijab is a relic of the Dark Ages, a sign of oppression, an impediment to economic progress, an infringement on women's rights. So now come to the recent times. In October 2000, it was learned that a French-run French school in Alexandria, Egypt, Iskandaria, Egypt, Misr, this is a Muslim country. When you arrive at the airport, you say, Udhulu Misra, insha'Allah, amineen. So, uh, when the lawsuit was brought against the school administration, what happened? They banned hijab for the students in Egypt, this French-run school. And one of the students, they brought up a lawsuit against the administration. The French embassy tried to shield them by claiming diplomatic immunity. Now we come to the hijaz. The Bilad of Haramain, Sharifain. In 2003, January, it was reported that Jeddah Prep and Grammar School, operated by the British and Dutch embassies, did not permit its students to wear hijab. We're not talking about niqab, we're talking about hijab. Girls wearing hijab were forced to remove it every morning before entering the school in Jeddah. Stones throw from the Kaaba. It was only the refusal of one Egyptian girl, Lujain, to take off her hijab. It was happening for such a long time. 
She refused, and subsequent refusal of the school to let her attend classes. This is what finally brought the issue to the surface. When contacted by the Arab News reporter, the school administrative secretary said, the school policy is a total ban on all headscarves. She added, any girl wearing a headscarf will not be allowed to enter school. SubhanAllah. So, I mean, Allah Ta'ala says, وَلَن تَرْضَ عَنْكَ الْيَهُودُ وَلَن نَصَارَى حَتَّى تَتَّبِعَ مِلَّتَهُمْ They will never be pleased with you until you completely lose your identity and become like them. Like there are, we talked about the barometers, the hijab, there are other things that are uh, part of the index of determining how successful assimilation is. So these are not some random um, conspiracy theories, but documented from their think tanks and the proposals of how to deal with Muslims. We see here, for example, um, specific indices of assimilation are used in the reports, including we have to determine are the people praying less frequently, not following the fast, and making fewer visits to the country of origin. SubhanAllah. So these are in the, uh, different index that they have developed to determine, SubhanAllah, how practicing or not practicing Muslims are. Several states in Germany have already banned the hijab. Belgium is publicly debating it. And yet we are confused and thinking, what is the big deal? So what is the so-called life of freedom without hijab look like? The life of freedom without hijab, number one, the beatings by husbands and boyfriends are the leading cause of injuries to all US women. One in four women are abused by the man they are involved with. Battering incident occurs every 18 seconds in the United States. 30% of female homicide victims uh, are killed by their husbands or boyfriends. 42% of women in the US military are sexually assaulted. They're having many digestive diseases and then they went into a, the investigation. They said that, you know, in Iraq, for example, more than the improvised explosive devices, IEDs, of the insurgents or the freedom fighters, depending on which side you're looking at it, um, or more than any other attacks, the greatest threat for the women in the US military was the fact that they're having the digestive diseases is because they're holding on and not urinating or defecating, not going to the bathroom because of being afraid of their fellow US soldier males raping them. Right? Three out of four women are victims of violent crimes. Women is raped every six minutes. Uh, every other US woman has been approached by at least one person who tried to rape her. 13-year-old rapists are not uncommon. Neither are eight-year-old victims, etc. Et I mean, there's very gross facts that I think is sufficient. So this is the life of liberty. What is the Islamic concept? First of all, which part of the body you expose, which part you can't expose, who determines that? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this is not something that we came up with, all right? Or some males came up with, or even Rasulullah came up with. When we follow Muhammad we don't follow him because he is Muhammad bin Abdullah or because he was a wise man. Like some of those books, like Hayat Muhammad of Haikal, you know, they present him as a very wise person, a very genius person. MashaAllah, he came up with such a beautiful economic theory to help the downtrodden, impoverished people. And he was a military genius, and he was a great political leader. 
etc., etc. But Sheikh Saeed Ramadan Abuti in his Fiqh Sira, the jurisprudence, what is it? The jurisprudence of the prophetic biography, Fiqh Sira, he explains that, that this is such an attack of shaitan, these statements. Because you're praising him, but you're missing out the most important fact. What is that? Rasulullah. He is a messenger of Allah. He is receive, he's a recipient of divine revelation. That's why there are many quyud and conditions and qualifying statements that are added to the definition and complete jami'a mani ta'rif of iman. And one of them was added by Shaykh Anwar Shah Kashmiri rahimullah. He added this at the end. What is iman? Huwa tasdiqu. Huwa tasdiqu bi jami'i ma jaa bihi an-nabiy sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Ijmalan fi ma ulima ijmalan. Wa tafsilan fi ma ulima tafsilan. Min ghayri imarat al-takdheeb. Min haythu annahu rasulullah. That we believe in the entirety of the message conveyed to us by Rasulullah sallallahu We're in brief, in brief, we're in detail, in detail. Without adopting any sign of rejection. And we believe in that message from the perspective that he is speaking on behalf of Allah. Min haythu annahu Rasulullah. He is speaking on behalf of Allah. So this is what we have to get inside the brain of our women and our men and all of us. That these commandments are not coming from anyone. They're coming from whom? Allah. I'm afraid I'm repeating myself. But, you know, Allah does so too. I tell the students that, you know, you tell, you're asking, you're getting upset, I'm saying, I'm repeating myself. This is the فَبِأَيَّ عَلَىٰءِ رَبِّكُمَا تُكَذِّبَانِ فَنَامَنَانِ Okay, so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala repeats himself so many times. He said it once, you don't tell Allah, we got it. No, he keeps on repeating it. This is, this is the essence of it. That this is from Allah. And whatever Rasulullah is saying, and he's saying it on behalf of Allah. And there are, okay, so there are some different objections. One by one, quickly, I want to go through them. One of them is, in today's culture, they, people will say, a woman will say that, look, you know, why do I have to cover myself up if it is a weakness in the guy? The man is so weak, he can't control his gaze. He, is, he, ha- he has a sickness. Allah Ta'ala says. So he has a sickness. That's his problem. He got to deal with it. He should deal with it. He should get treated. But what's wrong with me? So, why, well, you know, why, why do I have to cover? So there is certain truth to it, but then it's been misunderstood and reaching the wrong conclusion. One thing is true. One part of the statement is true, but we're reaching the wrong conclusion. Which part of it is true? The part that's true is, there is general qaida and principle of the deen. No one has anything to their credit but what they earn themselves. So if you do a good deed, that's for you. Yes, there is a way of Allahumma usal thawab hadha ila ruhi fulan. Oh Allah, allow the thawab of this action go to so and so. Isal thawab that's a different thing. Or if it's a sadaqah jariyah, etc, etc. A few exceptions. But the general rule is, if you do a good deed, the reward is for you. And walla taziru waziratun wizra ukhra. If you commit a sin, the sin is for you. So everyone will be judged what? Independently. So, if the man, na'udhu billah, is staring at a woman, in violation of the command of Allah, وَقُلِّ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ يَغُضُّ مِنْ أَبْصَارِهِمْ that command the believing men that they must lower their gaze. So is he committing a haram action? Yes. Is he responsible for that haram action? 
Absolutely. Will he receive the sin of that? Yes, unless Allah forgives him. Don't forget, there's always a babu tawbah. There is a door of tawbah. Before he dies, if he repents, and we hope he does, we hope we all do. The one who repents from a sin is like the one who never committed it. And in fact, if he doesn't see forgiveness, he dies. Still we have in Allah It's not a hundred percent promise, but Allah Ta'ala besides kufr and shirk, He may choose to forgive someone. So we cannot say that definitely He will be punished in the fire of Jahannam. But what we will say is that definitely it is a sin. And He is responsible for that sin. Okay, are you responsible for the sin of looking at haram? No, unless you do too. Okay, but there is another command. So he has a command, don't look. He's guilty. But you also have a command, don't display. You're guilty too. Just because he is guilty of, of, of the sin of looking, doesn't mean that you're scot free, you're, you're free of the sin of displaying. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the same ayat, he says, They should not display their beauty. So there are two different sins here. One is the sin of displaying and one is the sin of looking. He may or may not be guilty of the sin of looking. If he looked, he's guilty. If he didn't look, he's not guilty. But you, are you guilty of the sin of displaying or not? That's depending on how you dress. If you fulfill the order of Allah and don the hijab, you are not guilty. And if you are flaunting your beauty, then you would be guilty. Even in a theoretical scenario, imagine, for us it's theoretical, in the past in the seerah it was practical, it actually happened. When uh, the spies came to the Qaisar, the Qaisar, not the Qisra, the Qaisar of Rome, of Eastern Roman Empire, and they said, these are, you know, Fursanun bin Nahar and Rubbanun bin Layl, they're riding the horseback in the day and they're riding their musalla in the night. This army, we cannot penetrate them, we cannot defeat them. Khalid bin Walid comes with 30,000, we are 600, we are 250,000. Yarmouk is defeating us, all these battles. How can we defeat them? So we have to involve them in the sin of zina. That is a way to break them. So you ordered all beautiful models to be in a most beautiful manner with makeup and exposing themselves on both sides where the army is going to go through. And Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah, he's the Amin al-Ummah. Rasulullah said, لِكُلِّ أُمَّةٍ أَمِينٌ وَأَمِينُ هَذِ الْأُمَّةِ Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah. Every ummah has one individual who is the greatest trustworthy individual. Most trustworthy individual of this ummah is Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah. He recited the ayah, قُلِّ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ وَضُّ مِنْ أَوْصَارِهِمْ All the believing males looked down. So the entire army passed by. No one even glanced up once. Then they went back. and They said, we cannot destroy these people. So, in such a case where not a single male looks at a woman, practically in the past, theoretically today, is she still sinful of the violation of the order of not displaying beauty? Absolutely. Because they are what? Two independent things. So this is a trap of shaitan. He traps the woman and says, look, they're looking, this their problem. Why is it your sin? Recognize, my dear brother, it is your sin to look. And recognize, my dear sister, it is your sin to display. The opposite happens too. Men like to display their beauty, and women also like to look at the others. Rasulullah mentioned that ma'ilat mumilat. Ma'ilatin, they themselves are inclined to men, these women. Mumilat, they want to make other men inclined towards them. So, and uh, men also display their beauty. So, but primarily, 
the major test for the man is not to look and the major test for the woman is not to display and so this is one attack of shaitan another attack of shaitan and this is an advice that recently there was a different crowd limited crowd of Jumu'ah where I had shared this few just few Fridays ago but I was overwhelmed with the response because I didn't know I touched the wrong nerve with so many people on both extremes where I talked about the whole concept of don't judge one extreme of don't judge and the other extreme of judging and what the reality is in between so many people came up to me afterwards like oh my god we wanted to hear that we needed to hear that we need to repeat that again and again so let me summarize it in a few minutes from Maghrib so and how is this related to the hijab topic so one side we have this concept again which is being promoted from the member it's not from non-muslims as we talked about earlier we're trying to ban the hijab or from liberal muslims I don't know what, who, what, what liberal Muslim or not liberal Muslim means anymore. These are very subjective terms. But imams from the member are also preaching that if a woman is exposing herself, wearing tight clothes, wearing fulan, fulan, displaying her beauty, it is not your job to judge. Don't judge anyone. Uh, okay? Because Allah knows. And I give an example of a khatib in the Jumu'ah khutbah which was a few hours after the Eid, he said, you know when we just went to Eid in the park, if you saw a woman displaying herself, showing off her beauty, fulah, 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 don't judge. Perhaps she's more beloved to Allah than all of your itikaf, all of your tilawat, all of your tahajjud. You just got out of itikaf and you came for Eid and guess what? She's more beloved to Allah than you. All right. Somebody gets married to a Muslim, non-Muslim. Somebody gets married to an atheist. A girl leaves her family, elopes and runs away. Guess what? Don't judge. You never know. You never know the circumstances. Okay, so this is one extreme. The other extreme is so judgmental. As somebody said that, you know, you're Muslim, you don't have as much diversity, and some, uh, you know, somebody comes, he has a tattoo, you know, and you just grab him and say, don't you know this is haram? Your namaz is not going to be accepted. You look at him in dirty eyes. It's not a matter of the pain. The guy is struggling to just bring bread to his table to feed his kids. Are you going to pay for his uh, elective plastic surgery of ink removal? How expensive it is? You're just saying, it's a, whatever he could cover, the tattoos inside, he covered it. Now if there's something on his neck, if something on his hand, you're blasting, you're saying, what is this? Or somebody is covering their aura from navel to the knee, but some portion of the, under his knee, he may be exposed. You're blasting him for how he's dressing, or you're acting in an arrogant manner. Or on the woman's side, that's what the topic, the hijab. Somebody doesn't come wearing the proper hijab or the proper color that you think is obligatory and then you look at them in a very mean manner, demeaning manner and say, you know, your iman is incomplete, your salah doesn't count. This is what? Absolutely haram. Right? Because different commandments of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala have different levels of obligation. Like the amama I happen to be wearing today. Do I always wear amama? Those are here? No, I don't wear it every single day. But I had one teacher, for example, Shaykh Alauddin Nawwarallahu Marqadahu from Qandahar. So every single year we ever saw him. And before that, he taught in Madrasa Sawlatiyah and Makkah al Mukarramah for 22 years. Not once did he come out of his house without an amama. Because he was from where? Afghanistan. In Afghanistan, he, he coming, the most muttaqi alim and the general population person. In fact, may Allah forgive, there may be thieves everywhere. If there's a thief too, what will he be wearing? An amama. 
coming outside without a mama is like so unbelievable. Like it's like you're coming outside naked. No shoes, no shirt, no service. No amama, no service. Right. So, anyway, so I said. So, if you look at someone here, you're not wearing amama, your salah doesn't count. Or you're not wearing a topi, your salah doesn't count. We've talked about sharait, right? Wearing a cap is part of the zina. Ya bani Adam, khudu zina takum inda kulli masjid. Oh, bani Adam, when you come to perform salah, come in the form, full form. Yes, you should wear a cap. Nabi Sallallahu wore a cap. But if somebody doesn't have a cap, then we don't need all these third spaces we talked about earlier. Right? Because if somebody comes to a masjid without wearing a cap, then you're going to say, oh, you know, your salah doesn't count, young man. Go, get out of here. Go wear a cap or, or, or get lost. Right? So this is, this is wrong. Right? This is absolutely unacceptable. So what's the reality? The haq is in the middle. What is that? That when it comes to determining what's right and wrong, there's distinct right and distinct wrong. Haq and batil is clear. What farad is an obligation, and what's a ma'asi and a sin is clear. Al-halal ubayyan wal haram ubayyan. They're clear. There is some gray area too. Ishtihadi area. Ubayna wa mustabihat. We're not talking about the gray. We're talking about halal and haram. So, when it comes to speaking out against haram, it's an obligation. That's the topic after Maghrib. And when he speaks to enjoining good, it's an obligation. Amr bil ma'roof. We don't have to um, be diplomatic about it. We don't have to beat around the bush. So we should say, coming out like this, displaying your beauty for a woman is haram. For a male is also haram. If he's exposing himself because he's wearing incomplete clothing in the summer, for example. There is one objection, one confusion that comes. That, okay, I just did itikaf. Is itikaf a good deed? Yes, it's a good deed. This person in Eid is um, showing off her beauty. Is that a good deed or a sin? It's a sin. Okay, so am I supposed to consider myself better than that individual or not? No, you're not supposed to consider yourself better. Really? Then how do I reconcile this? I'm doing the right thing. She's doing the wrong thing. But... I'm not supposed to be better than her. Make up your mind. So what's the answer? The answer is very simple. Al-i'tibaru bil khawatim. What counts is the ending. And the ending is unknown. Because currently, yes, my action is correct. And currently her action is wrong. But there are so many people who were at the pinnacle of apparent taqwa. And they were the, adorning the member in the mihrab. But they died in the dens of vice in the casinos and bars. And so many from the pubs and from the haram, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala granted them tawfiq to do tawbah and they became the salihin. They died in sajda by the Hajar Aswad on the 27th night of the Qadr. So the thing is, you never know what the ending is. So this is how we reconcile it. Simple as that. Always keep our eye on the khatima. So we'll, when... when um, See what happens, there are some people who are genuinely very nice. And if they say that, you know, something haram is happening. Doesn't, it's not, this discussion, by the way, is obviously not limited to hijab or niqab. But that's one key example. Anything haram is happening, they're like, oh man, I really can't say that. Because who am I to judge? And, you know, whatever. They may be, I don't know, beloved to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Yes, you always feel that way. Never become arrogant over any good deeds you are able to commit. Because what? وَمَا تَوْفِيقِ إِلَّا Billah. Tawfiq is from Allah. You know what that means? It means two things. It means multiple things. One thing it means is that whatever good you were able to do, it came from Allah. 
And second thing it means is that ability to do in the future is also from Allah. And it also means that if it's in the hands of Allah, He can take it away anytime too. And if the other person doesn't have tawfiq today, Allah Ta'ala could take it away from you, the same tawfiq and give it to them. So, just balance these two thoughts. We can strongly speak out against wrong and identify it as wrong. While at the same time, deeply believing, sincerely believing, we are not better than that person. And we make dua to Allah Ta'ala. What do we say? Rabbana, la tuzir qulubana ba'da idhadaytana. My, my regular crowd hear me saying this all the time. The key word in this whole ayah is what? Ba'da. Oh Allah, do not allow our hearts to become accursed. Zayg means crooked after you have guided us. This ayah in of itself is an evidence of the possibility of misguidance after guidance. Because if misguidance after guidance was not possible, we would not have been taught by Allah to seek protection from misguidance after guidance. Because it's a futile effort to seek protection from that which is never going to happen. Right? So what's the message? If those sisters who are here, how many sisters are not wearing hijab? Very few. All the women who are here are wearing hijab. I know that. But what I'm asking you is, when a woman who is not wearing hijab, you interact with her in the masjid or any event. Your amal has nur, it will attract her. So shaitan is working over time to inject in her mind negative thoughts about you. You never even open your tongue and your lips, you never said anything. Your silence is being equated with arrogance. And shaitan is telling her, this woman thinks she's more pious than you. This woman thinks she's more righteous than you. Let's go further. This woman thinks you are promiscuous. This woman thinks you have loose morals. Guess what? Worse. Shaitan will say, this woman thinks she's more beautiful than you. She, and you are so ugly and you're showing off and she's so pretty, that's why she's covering up. So what should the practicing Muslimah who wears hijab do? What's the burden upon her, and she should regard this as her responsibility, is above and beyond the call of duty, the normal required mean, uh, requirements of being nice, she has to be what? Extra loving, extra hugging, extra smiling, extra ikram and honoring to overcome the negativity that is coming from shaitan. More humble, get up, hug, bring, sit down, show and express that respect to the woman who is not wearing the hijab. Why? So that shaitan will have no recourse to confuse that poor sister of ours. So this was another topic I just quickly wanted to touch on uh, about subhanallah hijab. And if you look at the chronology as well, in Makkah, Allah Ta'ala built the iman of the sahaba and sahabiyat. And these ahkam came in Madinatul Munawwara. And lastly, I want to end with a good news, Bashara. And the Bashara is Rasulullah, this is the last thing, the Bashara, glad tiding. Let's end with the glad tiding. The glad tiding is, Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said, Tuba lil ghuraba. Tuba lil ghuraba. Congratulations, Bashara, glad tiding. الذين يتمسكون بسنتي عند فساد أمتي بدأ الإسلام غريبا وسيعود غريبا فطوبى للغرباء إسلام began as a very strange concept people were like أجعل آلية إله واحدة إن هذا لشيء عجاب how can all the gods become one this is strange so Islam began as a strange concept a time will come when it will again be regarded as strange so glad tidings for those who are regarded as strangers as strange by others 
they're holding firmly onto the, my sunnah at the time of the facade of the ummah. So this is the day and age when the outsiders are trying to ban hijab, the insider of the ummah are trying to also get rid of it, right? And, uh, and coming up with all these wrong interpretations. Those sisters who are holding on to hijab, they will have a very special maqam. In fact, in the light of the Quran and Sunnah, the reward is proportional to the effort of mujahada, is a qaida of our deen. The woman who's wearing hijab in America will receive more reward than the hundred times, thousand times multiplied reward in the Kaaba, by the Kaaba in Mecca. Wearing hijab in America, you'll receive more reward than wearing hijab in, in by the Kaaba, inshallah. Because you are facing the difficulty. You're facing uh, the, the Islamophobic attacks. And subhanallah, we should support our sisters. I want to give an example of a non-Debandi, and I'm being frank about it. Mulan Tamim, of course, are my dear Debandi brother. He is a Sanad, Haddasana Mulan Tamim. He told us that Imam Zaid Shakir, right, who studied in Syria, Africa, he's, he's, he didn't, he's not a Debandi, so not a Debandi thing. Because he said such a super conservative thing. Mulan Tamim shared with me you know, when he was here that Imam Zaid Shakir, he came to our masjid in Richmond, in California, and he was telling the men that your wife is wearing the hijab and she's going against the culture, shame on you, you can't even wear a kufi. At least, these non-Muslim women, the liberal ones in the MSAs, and uh, you know, who have aligned, you know, what did they do? They wear hijab, uh, what is it? Wear hijab day. Like the fastathon, they fast and try it out. So they wear hijab for a day, in solidarity with our Muslim sisters, then you can also join our LGBT parade. <laughs> right. So that's another issue. So the thing is, they are, they are also having the solidarity. But what about you as men? You want to blend into the non-Muslim culture. You want to be, you are so blended into the non-Muslims that when like the fitna, you know, when they had the riots in Modi, the Zalim Modi in Gujarat, so many dead bodies. Now the billah, no identifying marker, which one is a Muslim or Hindu, such that they had to see if he's circumcised or not. Makhtunan am ghayru makhtun. Oh, this one is circumcised, Muslim graveyard. This one is uncircumcised, or oh, we'll bury him, uh, burn him. Start the burning here for the mushrik and then afterwards. So this is, so this is, there's no identifying marker. You want to blend in and bichari miskina, she's wearing a hijab. So he said, you should at least wear a kufi. He called it a kufi, you call it a topi, whatever you call it. Because you want to display your Islam. One of, you know, we take the feedback from the one year intensive graduates. We asked one of them, okay, after you graduated, give us feedback. How was your one year? He said, I went back to university so-and-so. One Ajib feedback he said is that every day was part of my uniform to wear a cap in the masjid, in Darussalam. So it became a habit. So when I went to university, I, started, I continued wearing it. And then what happened is that it protected me from so many uh, uh, advances of uh, the opposite gender. Because they said, oh, this guy is a religious boy. You know, he's not going to be interested. SubhanAllah. So likewise, so this is, SubhanAllah, let us understand that our sisters, we understand it is difficult, we understand it is challenging, but inshallah, Allah will grant you great reward. May Allah Ta'ala grant us the reality that this is a symbol of our faith and our identity and keep us steadfast on it until we die.